You know the accident up there? Yeah. Someone got hurt. They did? A lady. She died. Oh my god, but you can see her? Yes. Where is she? Standing next to my window. Well, you're scaring me. They scare me too sometimes. Okay. Ghosts. So I have a random and somewhat stupid question. In my emails during the day, do you hear my voice in them? Yes. Really? Very strongly. All the time? Yeah. Sometimes, although I've added its own sort of snark voice that I don't think you ever use when you're talking to people over the phone, but uh... your emails are snarky, yeah. <laughs> That's... I, I gotta work on that. That's not exactly how I want to be portrayed. No, um, it's usually when you've said, um, I'm an ass, and oh. then you're going. Okay, okay. It, I, I have imposed the snark that I believe you intend. I wondered about if, if after a while, when you get, you know, when you read somebody's words, forget about the fact that, you know, we've hung out and, and that we're both podcasters and familiar with each other's voices, um, if, if it's something that comes through when you're when you're reading you know communication from them back and forth through a day oh definitely yeah do you hear my voice usually when you're calling me a dummy okay good you know because <laughs> that's when you really want it to be coming through right yeah that's when i want it to stand out this and is it's a me wonderful friendship we've cultivated it's true welcome to wherever you are my name is ryan mcneil in toronto canada you are listening to episode 161 of the matinee cast it's the movie loving podcast on my movie loving website thematinee.ca your home for cinematic passion and perspective we are back outside this morning and i do believe it is far less breezy than the neon demon episode so if you've got some wind whipping in your ears during that conversation i do apologize i didn't think it made things inaudible although mildly unpleasant but uh, today we seem to have very calm skies and today um I-, I think about the fact that sometimes you reach out to your friends and you say hey can you interrupt your vacation to go see this small movie that you might not have been interested in and then can you further interrupt your vacation by skyping with me for an hour to talk about it and they say i guess but the beauty of that is that you then get to turn around to them and say, hey, can you also go see one of the most talked about movies of the year and then talk to me about it on Sunday? And you hear, okay. So let it not be said that great friendship is not deeply appreciated on this show. And let it not be said that favors are not remembered because we have this morning one of my best friends uh, on to talk about one of the year's most talked about films um, for better and unfortunately for worse and uh, I think it's going to make for a good show. She is one of the co-hosts of the Real Insight podcast, a show that combines the top money maker of a given year with the best picture winner and you know discusses the similarities and differences and virtues and vices of both. A show that she co-hosts with Rachel Thoreau. 
You can find that show on realinsight.podomatic.com. She also writes on Cinema Axis, uh, cinemaaxis.com, and uh, occasionally she writes here, usually when we're covering hot docs um, at thematinee.ca. We're across the St. Lawrence River to upstate New York talking to Jess Rogers. How are you this morning? I'm good, and it's very kind of you to uh, describe me as the co-host of the Real Insight podcast, because I always kind of think of myself as the sidekick. <laughs> You're the Robin in that dynamic I, I really think so, and I bet if you're honest and you've been listening a long time, that's how you think of no, me too. You guys are you guys are equal partners. You're equal measure. Are you kidding? Like it's it's at the point where you can't. If one of you decides you don't want to do it anymore, you just can't do it anymore. Like if you were the sidekick, then Rachel could just replace your ass, but she can't because then it's, it's going to be a very very different show. Okay, so, I'll take that. And 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 vice versa. Don't get high on yourself. If Rachel decides she doesn't want to do it anymore, you can't just, you know... Uh, get I'm definitely sunk if she doesn't do it anymore. <laughs> Rachel, how do we record? <laughs> on episode 161, we will be discussing Ghostbusters 2016. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side and learn more about Jess. This is Know Your Enemy. Jess Rogers is a four-time guest today. Her first appearance was on episode 21, where we reviewed The Town. We learned that the first movie she'd ever seen in a theater was The Muppets Take Manhattan. The last movie she'd seen at the time was Snowcake. The worst film she'd ever seen was Over Her Dead Body. The unseen classic or essential was Citizen Kane, which she has seen, uh, watched, and enjoyed. And the film she'd wish she'd made was Out of Africa. She next appeared on episode 57, where we discussed Cabin in the Woods. We learned the film she digs that everybody else hates is Hey, Out of Africa. Uh, the film everybody else likes that she doesn't is There Will Be Blood. And I'm guessing there's still no movement on that, right? Oh, no, not oh, at all. It. Still don't like it. And I've added Lost in Translation kind of to that list. You mentioned that one last time. So they, they, were, yeah. kind of, they were co-leads at the time. Uh, the film that made her cry was the the last film to make her cry was The Hunger Games. In the movie of her life, she would be played by the Charlie's Angels version of Cameron Diaz or Rachel McAdams in any movie where she's playing a take charge badass. I guess that would include Spotlight, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the film she was watching next, sorta, was Take Shelter. Although it was a Netflix DVD that sat on her coffee table for four months and she inevitably returned. Yes. Finally on episode 86 where we discussed The Apartment. The film that made her love of film turn a corner was The Pursuit of Happiness in the way that it got her writing about movies. Her first date movie was Mission Impossible. Her sick day movie was Waitress, which I still don't understand because it would make me crave pie. But Yeah, it makes you feel good. Okay. okay. Um, the last film to leave her speechless was Taking Chance with Kevin Bacon. And her epitaph would be, in case I forgot to mention it, I had a really good time tonight. Time for round four. Jess Rogers, what is a film you really dig but you never want to watch again? I thought about this one for a while because there's a couple that I really like but scared me or just kind of pissed me off or were too sad and uh, I went with the too sad. I really liked Life is Beautiful um, with Roberto Benigni and I don't have any desire to watch him die again and watch Spoilers the whole thing be sad. People. Oh seriously it's a holocaust <laughs> movie. Because I thought about it. I, I really like Schindler's List but I would like to see it again. I like the way it works but I don't want to I've only seen Life is Beautiful once and all I remember is the dad sort of trying to keep it together for his son and I 
like the feeling I still have about it. I don't want to ruin that. See, it's interesting that you take the two Holocaust movies and you say that you could revisit one again, but you couldn't revisit the other again. And especially in that order, because I would actually think that Schindler's List is far more intense. And that's I like, agree. Yeah, that like that's the one. I know people who haven't seen it because they, they say, I can't put myself through that. Or I know people who have seen it and say, I just, I can't go back there. But Life is Beautiful, I like, okay, so, you know, you've qualified it in the way that because it's so traumatic, it's it's something that you couldn't go back to, and that, that that's you know one of the, the criteria I always expect when I ask that question. I guess my only sub question to that is: Could you maybe get yourself through the first half where it's all about the courtship between uh, Guido and Principessa? Oh, definitely. That's see, that's the thing. I wouldn't want to watch just half of it. You'd want to commit and do the whole thing but I like the memories I still have of it I don't need to um, remove it and I did think about this a long time because there are a lot of like longer movies or epic movies that I wouldn't qualify with I really dug them Mm. and I don't want to revisit them there are ones that it's like I respect that but I don't need to see it again see I I don't know I'm thinking that you should do the old Phoebe Buffay's mom trick of just stopping it early (laughs) it is pretty self-contained right like it's a love story and they, they wander off into the greenhouse and true live happily ever after if you if you if you stop it that if way it's, it's a wartime love story there you go the little boy is so winning though he's so oh, interesting yeah. throughout you can't really have the latter half without yeah. him okay well no that's that's definitely a good answer um keeping in mind that this show is usually only 80 to 90 minutes what is a film that genuinely freaked you out I'm sure you could even guess this one. And it was going to be a movie I really dug, but also never want to see again. But I knew you'd slam me for doubling up. Um, I do not want to see Slimes of the Lambs again. And it still freaks me out. Writing the list and putting it on there and writing out the words reminded me of all the things about it that freaked me out. How did I, we inevitably get there? Because I could have swore for the longest time you were just, you, it, was, it just wasn't happening. Um, guilt. A lot of guilt <laughs> from you, from Rachel. Now, why that one? Like, like you said, the list could be long, but what is it particularly about that one that sticks out about freakiness? I think it's the idea that he's such a benign person, and the actor who played um, Buffalo Bill, I had known him already as Captain Stottlemyre on Monk. So, like, this totally benevolent character and then he's buffalo bill and he's going to capture women and put them down a well and then take their skin off like he just becomes so gross and then the woman who's down the well was a doctor on Grey's anatomy like the actors i had known from other places and so i saw it so late that it just seeing them again freaked me out okay okay in other ways oh i just it was hard it's the, you know the cra- the crazy thing is visually like it's it's historically it's the only horror film to win best picture mm-hmm. and visually it's not tremendously scary like there, there's no. one or two moments in it that are really disturbing and really gross but they're kind of quick um and actually kind of tastefully handled but uh, well you know except for one um but it's it messes with your head like yes. really, and, and I think that's kind of the whole point of the movie, of course. And I think that might be why, along with, like you said, like grafting this mind messing onto these people who you're, you've come to, you know, care about and love in, in most respects. Sure. Anthony Hopkins, I mean, you know, it's like, when did the butler go crazy? 
right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And he, I mean, he's really well known for it. The, his whole. Um, his epitaph will have an image from Silence of the Lambs in it, probably the father being seen. And when you watch it, he's not in it that much. He's nope. in it just enough to mess with you. Yep. Really, really mess with you. Yep. And it's almost like he's setting up what you could see coming as like a series of like 30 books where ultimately he escapes and kills her or they run off into the sunset together. Like he's finding this really messed up balance and I don't know it's the movie has such a bigger gravitas to it than the tiny thing you actually see well I certainly can't make fun of you for that one because that's that's definitely one that I would appreciate why it messes you up and even if I could I, I wouldn't because again you're doing me a favor coming on this show so let it, <laughs> let it not be suggested that I am a heartless bastard uh Conversely, what is a film that always makes you laugh? So I did spend some time because there are a lot of movies that I really like, and it turns out the movies I really like, I quote like crazy. I don't necessarily just laugh. Okay. But um, there's a couple that I every time I watch it that I laugh, and the biggest one has got to be Step Brothers. It is a lesser oh of the. Will Ferrell movies, but it always <laughs> makes me laugh really hard, especially like when he puts on the um, Chewbacca masks and I don't know, the way they want to play together, it's just funny. You know, the ideas they get in their head to like change things, oh my god, it kills me. It's not like I expected you to pick some piece of really highbrow humor or anything <laughs> like that, but I think I. I did not expect that answer, especially because that's a movie I really hate. I know so a lot of people much. do. No, but it's it's the other way around. Actually, I, I know a lot of people who actually really like it and really think it's it's. Oh, really? Funny. I get mocked every time I say I like it. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't know anybody who likes it except me. Oh man, the no. person I went with still doesn't like it. <laughs> I, like, I, it like, I think that, he was just embarrassed at how much I laughed in the theater really loud. Is it and is it just is it that particular one, or do you find that like Riley and Farrell tend to tickle your funny bone pretty well? Oh, or they enjoy the crap out of me. Um, the Ballad of Ricky Bobby, I <laughs> hate that one. I no, I don't like the two of them necessarily, but stepbrothers. Oh my god, it kills me. Maybe it's something about like you know stunted maturity times two. I think it is, and it, they they commit. They just commit to being ridiculous, like showing up to job interviews in a tuxedo. Like there's a toddler logic to that that kills me. What is your favorite movie soundtrack? Okay, this is kind of a setup because you know I have, um, let's just call it horrible taste in music, and I am the antithesis of an audiophile. So just setting that up, don't get mad um, at my terrible you know, taste. I'm reminded of when I used to tell my mom, don't get mad. Because you know exactly what's going to happen. Is Yeah, I will get mad, but go You're on. You're going to be so disappointed in me, and that's going to be worse. Go ahead. Okay, I really thought about this. And when I was growing up, uh, the first CDs I owned were either musicals or soundtracks. I had no taste in music, so I couldn't actually go buy like a band's album and say, yeah, I like that. I needed my music curated for me, okay. let's say. And so movie soundtracks were a huge part of it. So... Mine was You've Got Mail. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And let me explain why. Okay. 
so I was in college when You Got Mail came out, and so I got the soundtrack because it was a curated thing that I really wanted. And what it does is combines a few things that were kind of popular at the time. It's got Dreams by the Cranberries, which was very big in the 90s, which is when I went to college. It's got some older stuff, like Splish Flash by Bobby Darin and Rockin' Robin and things like that. And then it's got some things from the 80s. Um, Sinead O'Connor shows up, Stevie Wonder with Sign Sealed Delivered, I'm Yours. And the biggest thing was it introduced me to Carol King. Okay. I didn't I knew her songs clearly because I don't think you could grow up the child of someone from the 60s and 70s and not know Carol King but it was the first time I had found a Carol King song that my parents didn't know okay. and it's anyone at all and <laughs> this is so embarrassing so I picked my boyfriend up from the airport uh, for no obvious reason and I played him this song saying oh my god this song makes me think of us and the big thing about it is you could have been anyone but I'm really glad it's you and I didn't think it was this overly emotional thing that I'm telling him I'm just like hey this makes me think of us oh yeah it was over like by the time we got back to campus he was so <laughs> embarrassed for me oh my god um okay so first of all that, that's a lot to unpack um, i know that's i see i had to come with a big defense of this okay but here's the thing that you actually didn't expect is that saying that you know when you were younger that your your approach to music was soundtracks i'm not gonna mock you for that because that was mine too a lot of oh, a good. lot of the first cassettes that i bought those were those things before mp3s kids um, were soundtracks themselves and I mean they were like horrible soundtracks like I, I wore oh, yeah. out the cocktail soundtrack okay. oh yeah I owned well, that one yeah yeah yeah. Uh, and not just for Bobby McFerrin I listened to that thing end to end um, oh yeah and so so no so so the idea that being drawn to soundtracks when you're younger especially because i think it, it associates itself with something else like it associates itself with a movie that's that, i think that's a lot of people's entry point of a certain generation i don't know about now because now soundtracks are just kind of a different animal altogether I think um, they are and it's funny that you mention you've got mail because nora efron soundtracks seem to be very very crucial to the movie like i'm thinking yes. about you know how important the um the jimmy durante songs are in uh in sleepless in seattle and, mm-hmm. and of course wink and a smile harry connick jr is all over when harry met sally um mm-hmm. you know i own both of those too yeah yeah and, and, it's, and it's a key part so it's uh no 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 and, and that's a, that is a good one like when you when you just if you were to just make that mix and not even say it's part of a soundtrack that that's a remake you know yeah. based on based on an AOL cue you know you could just play that and people wouldn't look at you twice so no I'm not gonna, I wouldn't mock you for that that's a good soundtrack okay thank you Last but not least what is a film you love but no, seemingly nobody else has heard of um See, I'm not on the cutting edge of all films, but I do watch a lot of documentaries, thanks to you and Courtney um, at Cinema Axis. So the one that I really like that nobody pretty much has heard of as a documentary is one called Just Eat It, and it's about food waste in America. And I have proselytized this film to as many people, and no one has still ever heard of it. And it is available on Amazon Prime to watch right now, at least in the United States for free so um it's amazing these two uh documentary filmmakers uh decided to figure out how to not purchase food as a way of looking at food waste like is there enough food waste out there to supply food for other people and it starts looking at how nobody will buy the last apple 
Yeah. Like, if there's one Lapple left, no one's going to buy it. It's just going to sit there. And the idea that sell-by dates are nothing. They don't mean anything. There's no legal basis but for a sell-by date. There is no um, industry basis for a sell-by date. And grocery stores will not sell food with a sell-by date that has passed, even though there is literally nothing wrong with that food. Yeah. And things like that. And they... They did some dumpster diving, but like industrial kind of dumpster diving. So they had amazing packages of food for months. They did six months and had no problems. They were like still sealed and everything. Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It was, and it's just amazing. And I, it didn't really get a wide release of any kind. And it just became this movie that I talked to a lot of people about. And I've never had anyone say, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I think it, I think a few people did. Um, I I think a few people more than us did get to see it because I know up here um, there's begun a movement in some of the major uh, grocery stores about the ugly fruit. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's slowly taking on down there. Um, in case people don't know what I'm talking about, um, fruit in order to be stocked in grocery stores has to be a certain shape and size, like within a yeah. variable. But if you've got a peach, for instance, it's not perfectly round, they won't stock it because they, it doesn't stack nicely. It won't sell. Oh, number one, it won't stack, but it also probably won't sell. It will be the last peach. Yeah, yeah, it tastes fine. It tastes perfect, but people sure. won't buy it because it looks like slightly oblong. Um, and, and that's a movement up here, too. So I, I, I'm hoping that we're wrong. I'm hoping, actually, that more people than we think have actually seen this movie. Um, but, that, yeah, that, that's a great example of a movie that um, that I could see why, why you would dig and also <laughs> see why people wouldn't have heard of it. Um, yeah. So, no, good answers. Good, good no, work. No, I'm grateful I have a platform to show it to students, so that helps me I was feel better say, about it. That's, that is awesome. Uh, you're, you're doing God's work there. Well, that is more about Jess. We'll learn more, even more about her when she inevitably shows up for a fifth time, because I'm sure she will. Uh, but for now, it's time to turn our attention to one of the most talked about movies of the year, uh, even before anybody saw a single frame of it. Uh, a movie that's been talked about for basically two whole years running and about 20 years before that. Come on back after this. We're going to talk about Ghostbusters as the new slang right after this. Ghostbusters 2016, which I'll refer to it just to differentiate it from its original version in 1984, was directed by Paul Fagg. It was written by Fagg along with his co-writer Katie DePole. It's uh, based on characters created by Ivan Reitman, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold Ramis. It stars Kristen Wiig, Melissa McCarthy, Kate McKinnon, Leslie Jones, Chris Hemsworth, Neil Casey, and a cameo cast of thousands. Kristen Wiig is Aaron Gilbert, and Melissa McCarthy is Abby Yates. They used to be friends. They were drawn together by their belief in the paranormal, and even wrote a book on their beliefs and findings. However, over time, they have drifted apart, mostly thanks to Gilbert's growing desire to put that part of her life behind her and seek tenure track at Columbia University. However, reports of an apparition at a stately New York City mansion bring them back together. Alongside Jillian Holtzman, that's McKinnon, the women investigate the phenomenon leading Gilbert to go from denier to born-again believer, to crusader who wants to catch this apparition or another like it so that she can prove all skeptics wrong. This puts the women into business and finds them hiring on a beefy but stupid receptionist named Kevin, and also taking on a fourth member named Patty Tolan, that's Leslie Jones. 
who has seen the spirits they are chasing firsthand and knows the city well enough to be invaluable to the team. Every skill the four women possess will be tested as a weird dude named Rowan seems hellbent, pardon the pun, on unleashing all of the restless departed contained below New York City and opening the door to Apocalypse. A new Ghostbusters movie is something that has been in the works for 20 years, and every bit of news about it sending fans into a tizzy over what could work, what wouldn't work. Two years ago, though, when news broke of this reboot and the women that would be fronting it, battle lines were drawn, and this went beyond the calls of bastardizing something by remaking it. This went right down to calls of sullying childhood memory to outright calls of sexism in the way that girls can't be Ghostbusters. In short... This became less of a movie and more of an argument. So, pop quiz hotshot. Has this movie become something other? Is it possible to talk about this just as a film and whether or not you liked it? Or is it a referendum on where you stand on a greater issue? Interesting. I think it's possible to talk about it if you like, just as you liked it. But... The second question is always going to be, and how did it deliver on representing all women? Like when you're going about your, your day tomorrow and somebody says, hey, did you see Ghostbusters this weekend? And, and they start talking to you about it. Is that going to be, whether they're male or female, is that going to be in the back of your brain of whether or not they dug it on its own merit or whether or not they were thinking about everything else that has come up over the last two years? I think that's exactly it. I've had both of those conversations on Twitter over this weekend. Um, I had just basic, why didn't you like it? Um, somebody didn't just didn't have belly laughs, and we were talking about... I had an audience that had huge enthusiasm for this movie, so yeah. even though there were some... There were a few, I laughed out loud. Genuinely, I found it enormously funny at certain points. But then there were other, like, lots of, like, haha Twitters and <laughs> sort of all the way through going, oh, look, who's that? It's funny. And, oh, look what they're doing with this. That I think came from the audience, whereas she didn't have that experience. Her audience was, like, dull and silent. So, overall, she didn't enjoy the film. And then other people, it's like, okay, if you want more women to lead blockbusters, you have to see this movie this weekend. Yeah, that's see that's that's the problem I face is that this is something that that you know I talked about this with Sam on the on the episode we did about the 52 women in film project is you want as much as possible to support uh female filmmakers you know come hell or high water but sometimes it almost feels as though you have to support it despite yourself um mm -hmm. look, like luckily none of the movies i've watched for that project have been turkeys i've enjoyed them all to various right. degrees um but like if I, if I were to go back a year there was a film i saw called suffragette that was directed by uh directed by a woman about a just monumental woman's issue that felt Carrie timely, Mulligan, timely. Right? again after a hundred years go figure um but it's not a good movie and while I don't want to be that guy I, I, I can't sit here and lie about it and say oh yeah you should see this movie it's totally good and it's totally relevant and all that stuff because somebody will come back to me and say why did you like that um, right to answer my own question like I in a lot of ways I think this kind of has become something bigger like I when I wrote about this movie last night I didn't want to mention anything outside of the theater I didn't want to mention the conversation I didn't want to mention the, the controversy but inevitably my thoughts just drifted there and sure. certain movies come along and that becomes 
the talk, right? Like, it, this is going to seem like a strange comparison, but the, the one of the movies that comes up that was like that was The Passion of the Christ, and it became about is this movie ultra-violent for the sake of being ultra-violent? Is this a movie that non-Christians can enjoy just as a film? And what does it mean? And so on and so forth. And it just completely abandoned, is this movie good? Right. And I don't... Like, you're right. I don't think we're quite there with this movie. I don't think it, it comes down to whether or not you thought this movie was funny when you talk about it. But I think when you do talk about it, that's always in the back of our heads. Oh, I think there's definitely... You can't ignore the gendered responses to the movie as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, things like that all the way through. I went. To, I definitely went to see this because I'm a woman and I wanted to support women-led films. And the 52 Project does that. And then it turned out to be a good movie. Yeah. But reason, other than this podcast, I went to see it this weekend was definitely with that in mind. Like, if I'm making my choices, I'm going to make my choices in this way for this reason. Yeah. Well, but let's get into it. What did you think of Ghostbusters? Because, you know, we've been talking about it for uh, for five or ten minutes now. We haven't even got into the actual uh, bits and bites of the movie. I, I like Just kind of by the way you were talking about it, I do take it that you enjoyed it. I did. I did very much. Yeah. What did you think uh, about it? I thought they did a really good job of removing the gender from the actual story in so many ways. And it's easy to think of the original Ghostbusters, well, it didn't have gender as a main concept either. And that's great. That's the point. The male version is the neutral. And they did a good job of making this version, which also is led by women, a neutral version. They There's nothing about them being women necessarily that drives this movie, which first off I just loved. And then I loved the story. Okay, I'm super nerd all the way through. I um, Did you understand ha- the physics? Yes, I oh have a degree God. from Columbia myself. In fact, I have three. But um, that was kind of cool. Like, I know the classroom she was in, they actually filmed some of that on campus. And then she's going for tenure and I'm on my way there someday but I loved that it started with that like it started ground in like actual science and saying that science people can think this way and it was like ah they represented me on screen look at this (laughs) (laughs) and then you note that moment I had the same reaction her dean or chair or whatever had when you saw her shouting into the YouTube video that there are ghosts there are ghosts it's like oh you can't have tenure (laughs) and I thought they like ground it in this like great place of yep you this is how exactly you walk to the other side of like credibility and they did a good job like Melissa McCarthy is not insane they left that to like Kate McKinnon who is also a badass engineer so she gets to be insane by like saying odd things or just smiling cryptically whereas Melissa Melissa McCarthy seemed to have like legitimate scientific attempts at things and a thought process (laughs) (laughs) and then they found she's just a mad scientist she really was thank you that's yeah. like the best description of her i've seen we could go down a very deep rabbit hole but we, like when you said this this film is gender neutral i actually had the opposite reaction i was like oh no really gender, it's like gender is all over this movie in a great way in er- like every time it came up i just I, I laughed i smiled i nodded i agreed it was it was never in a in a poking or knife twisting or just you know malicious intent anytime i i saw it i was like yep but, yep, yep, right, yeah, and, and just and went and went along with it. Um, it's it's crazy because 
for me, these are four of my favorite comedians. These are four mm-hmm. people who I find so goddamn funny every time they open their mouth, which is especially interesting for me with Kristen Wiig because I didn't really dig her at first. Um, if people, I'm sure a lot of people out there don't watch SNL anymore just because it's that kind of show that people just abandon it. You come and time. go, yeah. Yeah. Um, for a while there, she was she was the MVP. She was the one who. Sure. She was in, you know, if there were 15 sketches in a night, she was in 14 of them. Yeah. And the writers were just really, really leaning on her because they were in kind of a kind of a bit of a talent shift. And she was the one who was the most proven. And But at that time, it was kind of, it was starting to get on my nerves. I was like, okay, wait. I was like, you guys got to be able to write something for somebody other than Wig. Um, yeah. Now that she's off the show, I've kind of come back around on her. Also because I believe that she's capable of playing some really complicated characters um she's yeah. more than just somebody who mugs and does crazy things um and and the other three just continually make me laugh ever since the moment i first heard them open their mouths so i would go see a movie you know to watch these four women shoot the shit over beer to have them strap on oh, proton yeah. packs and bust ghosts is just an embarrassment of riches and I, I was I was on board. We're going to talk about Paul Feig a little bit more later on when we talk about Spy. But knowing his approach to movies and how he works with both McCarthy and Wig, I, I, I'm not surprised that the movie works as well as it does because it emphasizes story first and foremost and then just lets them be funny whenever they want to be funny. Yeah. And I think it kept um, a nice rain on all of the actresses. Like, they are capable of improving to the cows come home. Oh, yeah. Like, they are, they can go a long way. And often Melissa McCarthy is almost let to go to a, I don't know, an uncomfortable place. I think that's where <laughs> her humor goes really well. And it was not tamed down in either um, Bridesmaids or uh, Spy all that much. So I was a little nervous that they were going to let Melissa McCarthy just kind of run with the humor in this. And she has three or four of her classic sort of slightly uncomfortable moments. But everybody was sort of left to their a little bit of what makes them an amazing comedian. Um, Leslie Jones got to do her shouting and running around and telling people they were crazy and... Um, uh, Kate McKinnon got to do her uh, impersonations. I don't even yeah. know if not impersonations. Character. She creates a character and then makes them odd and weird and interesting. And ni- none of those overwhelmed everybody else. They left each of those as their own sort of set of humor to combine into this, I thought, a great mix of a soup of comedy. One of the things I always kind of have a problem with every time you get the... Um the frat pack movies that were happening so often if a few years ago with people like Paul Rudd and, mm-hmm. and Jason Segel and you know Jonah Hill and those kind of guys is everybody seemed to be you know dialed up to frat boy 11 and, yeah and it, it just after a while it just kind of it was you're all doing versions of the same guy whereas I feel like these four <laughs> women had four very very distinct approaches to what they wanted to do and even distinct approaches within their own character so like Leslie Jones for instance she gets as many laughs about dialing it down as she does by by doing her her yelling thing like her her whole Oprah bit of you get a car you get a car you know like, that is just as funny as her walking out of trying to walk out of the concert hall with the ghoul on her back and saying nope, yeah I'm just going home I've got yep. I'm just taking a day guys I'll see you but like they're they both for my audience got equal kinds of laughs oh and, exactly and I think like that's what really makes this movie so special is it'll it 
scene by scene, it gives them all a chance to approach things differently. Right. Um, and it's not trying to make them all fight against each other. No one of, of the four of them stood out as... No, it's not an Avengers movie. Lead. Right. <laughs> um, no, exactly. It's not. What about, now, a film like this, because it's so effects-heavy, um, part of it is going to come down to the look of it. Uh, on it, like, do, How did this work for you on a technical level? Because you and I, for instance, talked about this week, um, we were emailing about the BFG, and I'm beginning to think that where computer effects are involved, it comes down to a generational thing where our our nerves just haven't ever burnt that in and may never. Whereas the generation behind us, because that's the effects that they just grew up with, they just see it as it is. How? But in a movie like this, because it's all supposed to be so otherworldly and it plays such a big part, it can become either distracting or it can become a deterrent. How, like, how did that all play out for you in terms of the look of this movie and the effects? I thought they worked really well. There were a few things, and this is extremely nitpicky, but that's what kind of nerds do with films they love. So, um, when they're firing their proton packs, I don't exactly understand how it makes a loop around, like a lasso around the um, uh, ghouls and whatnot, but that's consistent from the previous movies. So, I didn't have a problem with that exactly. It was more the blowing other things up in the attempt to lasso the ghouls. Okay. That it's like, I don't see the consistency in what these are capable of doing. Oh, okay, okay. But yeah, but Other like, you say, that, that, that's, like you say, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a holdover from the first one. Right, exactly. So I kind of let it go, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. The only joke that was missing was they did not have any reference to Don't Cross the Streams. Yeah. I, w- I was waiting for it. I was like, you got to put that in there somewhere. I just want it. But I think they're holding that out for the sequel. <laughs> the, the one that I always, the, the, the joke that I always uh, attach myself to from the original one, I know about Don't Cross the Streams, of course, but the one I always loved is, don't look in directly into the trap. I looked directly into the trap, Ray. <laughs> like, just, just right away. <laughs> I did it. You know, I, I, and that one wasn't in there. But I think actually, um, you know, if we're going to go down that road, the fact that not every single thing was carried over, I, I think that is actually what helps this movie so much. Oh, absolutely. Is, it's a remake, but it's not a beat-for-beat beat remake because if we had had stuff like He Slimes Me... I, I think that would have that would have been all too much. The fact that this is its own animal is fantastic, and um, they didn't have to discover the pieces yeah. in the same way and really yeah. kind of um, emphasize their authenticity or credibility going through it. They just went with it. They had this credibility and were able to discover these things. Yeah, I I really dug the look of this film. Um, if you go back and you watch the first two Ghostbusters films, they're they're very much a product of their era. Um, yeah, and the way that they're grimy. Right, um, New York in the '80s was a yeah. different place than it is now. Actually, oh um, yeah, Times Square was not this thing. No, it is no. now, and that's the thing. Now it is very much an echo of what you see in this movie. It is very bright, very candy-colored, mm-hmm. very you know, almost like it almost all just has this bluish LED glow to yeah. it that this film employs. So, like the, the you know, a lot of the ghosts are got this bluish hue to them. The greens are very vibrant. And, like, I, I like the palette, I guess. That is what I'm... The, the long thing that I'm trying to get around to is I like the color palette of this movie um, in relation to the first one because the first one was more whites and browns and grime. Yeah. Whereas this one is all much more much more vibrant. And the ghosts, for me, I, I thought all the ghosts looked really good. That's a really interesting connection because that is what the tourist part of New York City is now. And that's what the tourist part of New York City was in the early 80s. Yeah. And 
yeah, another nitpicky point. There is no route that those cars could have driven that exists in New York City that they would be connected. <laughs> yeah, that's see that, that that's where you get into one of those things where the, like that's that's the the fact that this film filmed the the fact that this movie filmed itself in Boston. That's yeah. where those little things come up. Um, and, and you know, it's it's a it, it does suck that they couldn't go for that level of authenticity. It's of course it's a money thing when you get a film. Oh, that's and it's fine. Yeah, and but, they had they chose some really great great um places to look at and things like that so i didn't have a problem with that yeah i mean that i think that for me was one of the things i liked is though is even though the first two ghostbuster films they they took on some really iconic parts of new york city you know you've got of course Mm -hmm. the statue of liberty you've got the lexington building um times square of course this film um it seemed to want to play in a different part of new york and i i I dig that sometimes when when a movie's like you know we got spider-man does this all the time you know like spider-man climbs up the same skyscrapers we've seen every time and he always goes down fifth avenue and that kind of thing so i i kind of dig that because they couldn't use the iconic spaces they had to get more creative right you know and they did i like use columbia again right right they used columbia and they spent a lot of time down in chinatown which is much smaller than you'd think yeah, yeah, it's like two streets. The the only thing that held me back on this movie of of really really effusing about it and really really wanting to go over the top is the fact that they decided to start the story completely over. Um I, the, originally when when news of this broke that this was what they were going to be uh, that it was going to be starring these four women, there was you know all kinds of speculation as to how they were going to work them into the story and it w- was this going to be a reboot was this going to be canon were they going to be like you know the nieces or the daughters or something like that um i i sort of wish that the film had found a way to really actually tether it to what we had already seen um mm. and let it be something more original the fact that we're starting the business story over I feel like that holds it back just a little bit because if anything, if nothing else, it gives somebody who doesn't like remakes and reboots ammo. I'd rather this was a different approach to Ghostbusters Three. Interesting, because at some level, I really thought they were going to use Ernie Hudson as the link into that because we saw sort of quick cameos with um, everybody, uh, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and the other two. Um, sporting characters but I thought they were going to do that and I think it was more of a missed opportunity I don't think they needed to because I think the concept still existed um, that they were the next generation I don't think I think by introducing those guys even in these cameos it sort of lent this credibility to they are the next generation I think if they tried to build on the science of what happened before and I mean we'll talk about this but the "Quote unquote science of Ghostbusters 2 and the ethereal magic nature of what they were talking about. Um, I think it could have flopped horribly. Like they didn't anchor the first two in enough to build these characters. They would have been much more laughable since they tried to root them in actual science at the beginning. Yeah, as physicists. Yeah. So I mean, the the thing I'm thinking though is that. They could have had fun with where they already have fun with the with the backstories of all four of these characters, like the way yeah. that Patty is an MTA employee and just happens to come in because she's street smart, and you know Holtzman gets in there because she's already buddied up with somebody who is doing it, and, and right. 
you know, that kind of thing. I think they actually could have had a lot of fun with that same sort of thing as how they all get here. Is one of them... Is one of them related? Is one of them following the work of the others? Is one of them just a fan? Like, can you I imagine if, one, if one of them came to work as like, I loved what those guys did. I want to do this, you know? Like with Venkman, Venkman's book. Yeah. 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 Like I, and maybe that's just fodder for the sequel. It could I be. Th- they're going to go that way. I hope so. I mean, yeah, if you they, stayed to watch the final scene, you'll know it's coming. Yeah. We have to talk about Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> Which I can't believe I just got to say that on my oh, podcast. And actually, I would revise my answer. That is a movie I really dug and never want to see again. <laughs> oh. We're talking about casting in this movie. And along with the fact that I said, you know, they cast four of the funniest people I know. When it came down, when it came time to cast a receptionist for this team, they were already like they already put six points on the board just by casting Thor as the yeah. Uh, like, did did that did his whole thing just go exactly as you thought it would, or was that just a delightful surprise? See, I didn't like Kevin. What? No. Oh my I, god. He didn't make enough sense to me in any respect. It's I've just I've never seen a person quite so dumb. In any I I don't I work in academics, so maybe that's why, but that level of dumb, while he's pretty, and I love that he acknowledges he's pretty. I mean, he has some great lines like which of these pictures makes me look more like a doctor. <laughs> he's shirtless in both. Right. He's shirtless and has a saxophone. One yeah. he's listening to and one he's playing. Yeah. Like those are great setups, but one or two of those that are sort of surprising would have been better than like, holy crap, this guy is dumb as a box of rocks. Not he's he makes a box of rocks look smart, um, <laughs> and just not good at his like. Oh my god, I don't even know what they were doing with him. Well, I didn't <laughs> like his performance. I didn't think. Oh, I, I thought a couple me. times he couldn't act either. Oh my god! You know what it reminded me of a lot actually was there's an episode of Thirty Rock during the stretch where John Hamm played Liz Lemon's love interest. Um, and the the thrust of the episode is he, everybody around him doesn't call him out on being as dumb as he is or as, or as untalented as he is just because he's so handsome. Right. Um, so, like, he can't play tennis and he can't sing. and But nobody, you know, or he, he tries to, like, go out the indoor. But nobody ever calls bullshit just because they're distracted by his looks. Right. And, and don't get me wrong, this is an... This is an extreme case. This of that. is that turned up to eleven. But I think, you know, as as somebody who is average looking, seeing a guy who looks like Thor be spectacularly stupid, just it leveled the playing field for me just that little bit. You know? Okay. Uh, yep. And 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 also just you know watching even just seeing somebody who uh, who is as brilliant as as Aaron is just falling all over herself trying yeah. to have him I thought that that's that's one of those things is you know she's 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 a genius and she's got a lot of guts in doing this thing and she's she's had to overcome a lot but at the same time she is so flummoxed by somebody who is so pretty yet so impeccably stupid I liked that. I thought that was funny and well done, and that the others aren't throwing themselves on him, and that Melissa McCarthy at one point looks at her incredulous, like, really? You find that attractive? Yeah. 
was kind of well put. And I, I will say his acting picked up when Rowan takes over his body. I thought yeah. I, was, I Im- enjoyed that. So I will not blame Chris Hemsworth yeah. for okay. The bad acting, or what I perceived as bad acting oh, at the beginning. No, I, 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 I don't get me wrong. I, I would never suggest I want a whole movie of Kevin. And for the no. love of God, if we get like that was for me, that was like the right amount of Kevin. If we get to the next one of these movies and there's more Kevin, we're no, gonna have problems. No, there needs problems. to be less Kevin. No, no, no. Yeah, not a lot, but a little bit less Kevin. Yeah. There's odd sort of why are they at this. Um, Chinese over a Chinese restaurant and how they set up their place and why the um, governor, no, the mayor of New York City and his assistant Cecily Strong are trying to shut these guys down. I thought that was a little weaker than in the previous movies where it's just like, you guys are crazy, we don't want anything to do with you. It was more yeah, we know this is happening, we don't want to tell the public. I sort of chalked that one. I kind of went with that because I kind of feel like that's a thing. Like I, I, I like, definitely think it could be. Yeah. Um, so it, it's you know like again, but that's one. That's one of the same beats from the first one. Is they're dealing with bureaucratic interference and incompetence that I, I yeah. kind of wish that maybe at this time they had some of the government on their side. Um, but I, I, I dug that about it, and um, I like the film. I, I like this film in its quieter moments. Like there, there's a long stretch where Aaron explains how she got um, interest, not interested in ghosts, but how ghosts first entered her life in the first place. And it's actually yeah. a really powerful and beautiful scene um, that I think has some other implications. And I, I, I like that it's in there because I don't think that that's, I feel like that's the difference between this movie and the first two is the yeah. first two didn't have those moments. The first two was all about just being silly and being fun. Whereas this one actually does come with a little bit of gravitas. It does. It comes from a kind of honest place and is trying to explain that to other people. It's not that they're trying to freak out other people or even save other people. It's more, look, this is real. Maybe we need to think about this. Mm -hmm. I liked it. I liked Zach Woods as the tour guide at the beginning. Yeah trying to meet these people i think he's such a great little character actor like that was these roles so well yeah one of the things i think i like about this movie is it actually knows just how to play the cameos like no well the 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 cameo by ozzy osbourne i thought was a little bit over the top but all of the other ones and there are a lot of cameos in this movie i think are just played well enough that they don't become distracting like, yeah. I believe that all these people exist within this world. Ozzy was kind of one step too far, but Ozzy's in and gone really quick. Um, yeah. Th- there's, listen, I think we're both on very much on board with this movie and saying that if, if you're a doubter, you should check it out and give it a go. If you didn't know what the, all the fuss was about, you definitely should give it a chance and give it a go. And I'm going to speak for Jess and say if you have daughters, you should absolutely positively take them to this movie because... At the end of the day, that is why this movie exists, is so that little girls who can, who always wanted to throw on proton packs and call themselves Ghostbusters now have somebody to look to and kind of see how that's all done. I think they do a good job of not glorifying them, not giving them girly um, outfits to go to. I think they look at least as bad as the original Ghostbusters in terms of their like jumpsuit proton pack outfits. It's yeah. not like they make girly versions of those, which I think is awesome. Yeah, I, I, that's that's actually a good point because that the, those those jumpsuits that Patty brings them from MTA, they are they are not at all form fitting. They're they're 
basically their potato sack coveralls. And oh, yeah. it's one of those subtle little things is if this movie didn't have as deft an approach, they would have been tapered. They would have been flared. They would have been, you know, they would have worn them just so. But the fact that they're utilitarian is... Oh, completely. You know, it's, it's a really smart touch. Yeah. So... I no. agree. Um, and I thought they had a few of those throughout. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. We end the review on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible you would like to keep from this movie if you could. Jess Rogers, what is your souvenir from Ghostbusters 2016? This is the best moment in the movie. I died. I wanted it to just keep going on. The power of Patty compels you <laughs> when she's trying to literally slap the ghost out of Melissa McCarthy and she whacks her across the face and that does it. That's the best part <laughs> is that she says it and she slaps her and the ghost leaves yeah. and then she hits her again. <laughs> um, it's is- so good. Leslie Jones is amazing. Mine is sort of similar but not not quite. Mine is we, you know, I think we undersold Holtzman in this whole review just because if we were to, yeah. we could dedicate 25 minutes to talking about Kate McKinnon Kate as McKinnon. Holtzman. Um, I think the internet's doing a fair I'm, job of yeah, lauding and, and I'm her. happy as hell that it is yes. because I mentioned Kristen Wiig being the MVP of SNL and right now that's Kate McKinnon. Um, oh yeah. Kate uh, Holtzman has a moment. They when they all finally go into battle with the apocalypse that's going on in, at the end of this movie, they all get their own moment to shine and do some and have a smackdown with an apparition. And Holtzman's smackdown when she plays with her custom weapons is unbelievable. It's the best sort of one versus many samurai type battle that you could imagine from any film and watching her just mow through those ghosts with the movements that she does using the weapons that she does is glorious there was a round of applause in my theater when she got to the end of that sequence it is fantastic i just want to watch it's it's like a ballet it's like a ballet and a battle all in one and i just want to watch it over and over and over it was my souvenir from the movie by far you know oh love it Um, so good well we rate on the matinee cast here on a scale of one to four stars jess rogers what do you give ghostbusters 2016 I would give it a good four stars. I didn't have anything that really knocked it back for me. I wasn't bored. I liked what they were doing. I liked the story. Um, it The dialogue every now and then is a little weird. And, of course, there's Kevin. But <laughs> I'd still give it the four stars. Um, I'm, I'm just at three and a half. And as I say, the only reason why I'm at three and a half is I think it could have been more if it was original or a continuation, not a reboot. Um, but and, and that's the only little unfortunate thing. Everything else about this movie is goddamn perfect. And I love it so much for that. And as I said, I just if, if nothing else, I love that it's successful. I love that it's funny. I love that it exists. Um, yeah. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing, and I think a lot of people should do it. Hey, listen, maybe you're one of the people who didn't like this movie. Maybe you're one of the people who thought it's not funny. And, of course, there's no arguing that because humor is subjective. But let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca. Twitter, we're at matinee underscore CA. Facebook.com slash darkmatinee. What did you think of the Ghostbusters reboot? We have a lot more movies to talk about, so we're going to flip the record over and play the other side. Come on back right after this.
For Jess's choice on the other side of Ghostbusters 2016, she went back just last year to a film also directed by Paul Feig, um, also starring Melissa McCarthy. It was uh, Spy, the movie where um, Melissa McCarthy is a CIA um, support operative, not a field agent, um, who happens to get shoved into the field when her um, when her partner has is killed, and um, unexpected results ensue. So. I'm going to go for the obvious here that you went with this as an association as the Paul Feig, Melissa McCarthy connection to Ghostbusters. I did. We saw it before. We had to choose these before. And I didn't know what the connection would be. And I saw the Paul Feig, Melissa McCarthy as the strongest um, superficial connection. I don't think, having watched them, that they make... Well, they do make an interesting comparison, but not a parallel in the same way I thought they no, might. Although as an approach to comedy and approach to filmmaking, I think it's it's all very much there and all kind of an example of what works versus what doesn't. Like if you know, not to not to really pick an argument or anything like that, but I'm gonna. Um, if we go back to your know your enemy questions, Paul Fagg's approach to comedy um, for me works a lot better than somebody like Adam McKay's approach to comedy with yeah. a lot of those um, frat pack movies. And it's interesting because. Paul Feig has now four features under his belt. They're all woman centric, um, and I, I don't I don't think that that is necessarily a key component to to how to his success. It's 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 a nice happy accident, um, but I think it kind of speaks more to how he works with people like Kristen Wiig and like Melissa McCarthy. Um, McCarthy, of course, has been in all four of his movies because he also did The Heat and he also did Bridesmaids. Um, right, but. They have a specific approach to how they make some of these outlandish gags work, how they approach a character, how they approach story. And so even if we were going, like, th- this was the, the difficulty that we, we both face going into this blind is, how do you pick a companion film? But saying, let's look at the approach of the director and the star is definitely a good one. Do you... When you saw Spy the first time, like, how did you come up? Like, did you really dig it? Like, when you first watched it last summer? Yeah, I thought it was very funny. I thought they did a great job making a um, sort of dowdy woman and a larger woman, like the James Bond of the whole thing. But a little bit tongue-in-cheek like they were well aware of what was going on and not haphazardly doing it very deliberately saying look there's no reason that this woman can't be james bond oh except for these reasons and they're really funny (laughs) yeah um it's um it's you know when you mention the whole thing that they they made a spy movie like like, you know when when it's called spy like they weren't really playing around even if you you could have cast it with anybody and it's just straight up a really good spy movie that also happens to be really funny like this is the kind of thing if anybody loves James Bond movies I would have no qualms pointing them towards this because of how it's structured and how it works it kind of rides a very good line between the super seriousness of James Bond and the parody nature of Austin Powers. Yeah. It rides right down the center. Well, I actually of, like this more than Austin Powers, actually. No, no, I like it better. I'm not yeah, saying yeah. that. I okay. think it takes the seriousness 
and couples it with the serious comedy. Like, yeah. here is why it's funny. We mean it to be funny for these reasons, yeah. as opposed to, okay, he's funny because he's got bad teeth and um, he's a Lothario. Like, it, it, it strikes the nice balance between plausibility and implausibility. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's definitely cool. Paul Fagg, um, so he is a person who come. he actually does come from the Judd Apatow school of comedy. Um, he was a, a person who cut his teeth on Freaks and Geeks. He's done a lot of television. Um, mm-hmm. He's directed episodes of The Office and 30 Rock and um, really, really uh, Parks and Recreation as well. Um, and he's his approach is um, emblematic in something I heard Annie Mumolo talking about, she was the person who co-wrote Bridesmaids with, um... Kristen Wiig. With Kristen Wiig, thank you. And Paul Fagg's approach, uh, along with Judd Apatow's approach to, to this kind of material was write a good story. We know we can make it funny. Like, we know that if I just tell you guys to riff on a scene or riff on a line, that we will be able to make this funny. But at the end of the day, it still needs to have a good narrative. And I feel like if you take all four of his movies, if you take Heat and Bridesmaids and certainly Ghostbusters and strip away all of the silliness, you still get a good narrative. Um, Yeah. Which is an approach I don't think enough comedies, male or female, it doesn't matter which, I feel not enough comedies are taking that approach. Not as much anymore. I think they did, like, when you were getting a lot of the more serious comedies. Like, I think of Lethal Weapon as a comedy, and it's a very similar, yeah, it gets thrown into the buddy cop concept. But I think it falls into the similar lines of, here's where it's funny, here's why it's funny, and, oh, also, there's this interesting story underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. The the other thing I dig about um, the movies like this and movies like Bridesmaids and and, uh, and The Heat is they have a way of really fleshing out a lot of these peripheral characters, um, specifically in Spy. I love what they do with Aldo. Yes! Like, like he's so absurd. He's this, this, you know, very stereotypical, ultra-horny Italian, and yet they know just how far to push him at any given moment. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And the weirdest part was, I was re-watching this, and I could, I was like... Have you seen? First of all, have you seen the outtakes from this where all you hear is Paul Feig feeding them and they're saying the new lines over and over? Oh God, no! Oh, it's absolutely worth buying the DVD for. Okay, but oh my gosh, they're so funny! It's like twenty minutes of him feeding them, saying, "Okay, you see the a scene of it." Then he feeds them another line, and they have to do it that way. And some of them are so funny they can't get through them. Does and he feeds stuff to like Aldo, for instance. For, to everybody. Okay. He just feeds most of a lot of it goes to Jason Statham and <laughs> everyone else can't get through it. And he and he The weirdest part is he's so not used to doing the comedy. Half of the stuff he just says it before he realizes what it's saying and why it's funny. And oh my god, the scene where he's describing the things he did in the hotel room, like taking up the piano at a very late age. And there's like twenty more of those that are insane. And the way he sort of puts all of these ideas together just really makes the comedy work. I think that's, that's another one of the things that I really love about Spy is the way it really mixes the people who you don't 
prototypically think about as funny with all of the comedians. Like, we, you know, we know obviously what Melissa McCarthy can do, but it's always awesome seeing somebody like Jude Law being silly, or certainly Jason Statham, who never seems to ever, like, let his serious down, like, watching him actually be genuinely funny and yeah. not just a smartass. But I think he doesn't know he's being funny. I think that's why <laughs> he's funny. Yeah. And I think it works. Rose Byrne is a person who, if she's in a movie, I go. Like, we, and we know that she can she can do comedy. Um, even going back to, like, a movie I wasn't even crazy about, like, Get Him to the Greek. Um, yeah, she's very funny in that. Oh, yeah, she's incredible. The other thing I like about Spy and, and Paul Fagg's kind of partnership with Melissa McCarthy is, I don't know if it's deliberate. I want to believe it's how Paul Fagg is wired, but he seems to take an approach that Melissa McCarthy's character is competent. And right. it's it's an unfortunate little side effect that when you get somebody who approaches comedy like she does and just will go you know, pardon the expression, balls to the wall with any running gag, that you have to make her a slob or you have to make her right. an idiot or something like that. And I, I really feel like that's what happens when you put her into movies like Tammy or Identity Thief and she's oh, yeah. just, you know, really, really dumbed down. In all of the movies where she works with Fag, she's smart, competent, capable, you know, she excels at what she does, even in something like Bridesmaids, which I think is really the the turn that makes her character much more interesting, and in Spy, watching her just, you know, be able to dismantle a room, to have that kitchen fight with that with that assassin. I, I feel Oh absolutely. Like, She's I, awesome in that. Yeah. There's a couple of things and I'm I thought of this because I saw Ghostbusters and then rewatched Spy afterward and it's part of what made me realize that I think they do Ghostbusters as here is the neutral not here is the female version of the same thing we've seen before and in some ways there are a few digs in Spy that I didn't notice the first time through that is not quite making her the neutral because Mm. They're digging at the fact that she's heavy and dowdy and this um, sort of mousy character at the beginning. And I think part of it is to see her transition from that horrible dowdy character at the beginning who lives in the basement with the bats or works in the basement with the bats to the badass spy fighting in that kitchen. But they dig at the fact that nobody could be attracted to her at least three or four times through the movie that it would be a joke that um, Jude Law could be like proposing to her and they run with that humor and that it's and absurd then, that Aldo's all over her right that it's absurd for that although they kind of come back around to that being an acceptable thing not a joke and when she's <laughs> as in much the- as that could be an acceptable I know, thing exactly <laughs> and then the idea of her in the dress both Rose Byrne makes fun of the catastrophe of her dress and um, uh, Jason Statham, whose name never sticks in my brain. Jason Statham says something about nobody being attracted to her and going to back to live in the basement with, you should get some cats and things like that. They make a few more of those digs yeah. than anyone would at any version of James Bond. Of right? Course. Like the neutral of James Bond is that he's attractive and everyone wants to get with him. Yeah. And so maybe they're trying to say the opposite, but they didn't do any of that in Ghostbusters. No. And I really liked that. Yeah. I may need to watch it to really 
see it because I didn't see it in Spy the first time through. Yeah. I only saw it second time through. It's it's one of those things where somebody like Melissa McCarthy, you know, you always think to yourself, you know, she's kind of she's kind of in a camp with somebody like Bobby Moynihan or Chris Farley or it's hey you know there's the heavy yeah. person who's funny because they know they're heavy and they just they right. just run with it but it's at, at the same time it's like must that always be at the forefront like can they not right. just be a comedian can they not just be an actor can they not right. just be somebody who's funny right and you're right like I, I like that they kind of know just how far to go with that in a movie like Spy or in a movie like right. in a movie like Ridesmaids it's it's not even spoken and it's actually kind of Kind it's of cool the reverse. Because, well, because like, she's also like the one who's like the most sexually assured. Yeah, absolutely, and it <laughs> does well. So it's not necessarily a defining characteristic of their comedy. I think sometimes they play it really well for laughs and not for laughs. Just that's her character. Yeah. And then in Spy, I think it was more part of her transition because she's hyper dowdy at the beginning, yeah. like. Oh my god. She is the definition of a picture of a cat lady. Like well, those were not reaches to get her to those identities. <laughs> it was a bit of a reach, but at the same time it was like it wasn't a huge str- it wasn't a huge reach. It no. was like, you know, if we throw a sweater in you and make your hair just a little bit worse, you can right. do this, you know, versus <laughs> Exactly. And she appreciates that she looks worse. She yeah. comments on looking worse. <laughs> I'm someone's homophobic aunt. <laughs> Such a great throwaway line. Oh man. And- so they do a good job of that and I, I really like this movie I don't want to spoil it by talking about some of the details but no. she's such a badass fighter I think she does a good job not going too far like in the heat I think they let her go really far with the uncomfortable humor and they keep reining her in to just the edge of what I find very funny and I don't find uncomfortable. I'm not someone who enjoys a lot of uncomfortable humor. Yeah. This was this was your choice for uh, for the other side. What is your ultimate takeaway? If somebody has never seen Spy and they came away from Ghostbusters liking it or not liking it, like why would they aside from all the reasons that we just mentioned, like why go on to something like Spy? This isn't a spoiler, but it is one of the last moments of the movie and it's when she's kind of finally gotten the She's been asked out essentially on a date by Jude Law. So we've come full circle to, oh, look, she's badass. So now she's so sexually acceptable. And she kind of says, yeah, I don't care. I've realized that I'm perfectly as good as all the rest of you hotshot spies. So I'm going to go hang out with my girlfriend. That's a good idea. I love that moment where she and um, Miranda Hart. Yes. And so she looks over at Miranda Hart, who's been her sort of sidekick throughout this, and they kind of smile at each other. And it's not gay necessarily, but it could be, and that's fine too. And it just, it's a moment where you realize she doesn't need this date. Like, it could have been cliched if she'd gotten all she ever wanted and went out on a date with this man she thought she loved. And I don't do that. And I love that about Spy. Awesome. Uh, we got one more movie to talk about right after this, so we're going to take one last break. Come on back. We are going to talk about another movie and close out the show. Something strange going on. Something's wrong. Gloom in the room. Outside is the storm. All alone in the crib. Watching the tube. Yo, is that what I did? Did I see something moving? Chills on your spine. Your heart goes with fright. Not filled by the flames. That gold bump in the night. Ghostbusters! Look, that's who you call Ghostbusters! 
For my choice on the other side, I went back to 1989 and went deeper into this franchise that uh, everybody got their knickers in a twist over. Um, I went back to the sequel. I went back to Ghostbusters 2 that brought back the original team, the original writers, original directors, the whole original cast, and sent them all on a new mission, um, this time to stop an evil entity named Vigo from taking over New York City um, by way of oil painting. Um, and watched it again because uh, that's what i do um, in case you're new to this show and that's what i you know advocate that everybody do now and then for better and for worse and uh wanted to see if so wanted to see what i really think about this movie because i've had a weird little history with it um but when I suggested this to Jess and suggested that maybe I was going to see it and not take as much away from it as I did when I was a child, um, she said, okay, go ahead, because I love this movie, and if anything else, it'll turn into an argument. So I need to kind of start there, because I rewatched it, and all of those little holes kind of really started glaring through um, for a lot of different reasons. But why do you still love this movie as, a, as an adult? So I think a lot of people have this moment where or maybe just middle-class white people had a moment where HBO was like free for a little while or um, your parents were willing to get it because they realized you were grown up enough to watch some adult content. Gotcha. And I think we had it for like a summer, maybe. There must have been some TV show or something that they wanted to see that they decided to get HBO. Maybe they got more money and decided HBO was how they were going to spend it. I do not recall because I was too young. But Ghostbusters 2 had just come out on it. And it was probably on every day (laughs) in the way HBO used to do that. So my brother and I watched it a lot that summer. Probably, I've probably seen Ghostbusters 2 30 or 40 times. Like, I've seen the first one under five. My god. I know. So this is your Ghostbusters, basically. It kind of was, in wow. the sense that the original one was almost too scary for 10-year-old me. Oh. But this one was not. No, no, it's not. Um, no, it's not scary in any respect whatsoever. Okay. so And so this was the one I saw. I probably saw this one first even and then <laughs> saw the other one and put it all together. Oh, man. Um, because when this came out in 89, I was 10 yeah. and probably still too young for the first one, though everybody everybody knew about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man as part, like the cultural touchstone moments from the first one. And Slimer. Were part of the zeitgeist. Yeah. Um, okay, so to, to it's kind of funny because every once in a while we uh, who, you know, write and talk and tweet and whatnot about film seem to get our panties in a twist over so many sequels. And every time that conversation comes up, because it's cyclical. Every once in a while, a lot of sequels seem to line themselves up over the course of one summer or one winter or something like yeah. that. But every time that comes up, I kind of think back to this summer of 89 because it was the first time I was ever aware of a lot of sequels happening at the same time. Because Interesting. This came out that summer. Back to the Future 2 came out that summer. There was um <laughs> There's probably a Rocky. There was there was an there was the third Indiana Jones. There was a second Arthur. There was a whole bunch. And almost across the board, they were all bad. Terrible. Um, but you know, we you and I saw them at a certain age, so they just kind of became part of 
you know, our vocabulary. And it was only as time went on that I started to kind of scratch my head and say, wait, what happened there? Because, the you know, the film made money. It didn't really get a whole lot of critical reviews, but there was never a third. And I think that that was because they did the second and just couldn't do it. Um, for me, like, you know, the reason, I think the main reason why I can't latch on to this film, and it was actually kind of brought up by uh, uh, somewhere this week, I think it was even as much as I hated it, it, it was the, 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 the honest movie trailer. The, <laughs> the core conceit of this movie is preposterous. The core conceit of this movie is these guys are frauds, which is absolutely ludicrous because of what happened just five years ago and how much of the city it affected. It, right. wasn't, it wasn't something that was just self-contained to that rooftop that only they saw and nobody else and nobody believes them. It took over that entire city of 8 million. It was, you know, 10 you couldn't stories tall. The Marshmallow Man, no. Yeah, how in the world can that be the core thrust of this movie that you guys are frauds? That makes I think no it, sense. No, but I think... I think it comes back to the idea that you can forget. You can forget who the heroes were. You can forget who the um, victims were. But you can't and it forget that it happened. You can forget who was responsible. You can forget the nuts and bolts of the idea. No, you're not going to ever forget the state of no, Marshall. No, but like what but, you're see, but what you're describing to me is the Avengers. It's not this, right? Like if you wanted, if you want to discuss, you know, who was at fault for smacking up New York and forgetting that it was a whole legion of Chitari, not right. this heroes of six, you know, who happened to save the day. Okay, I buy that. I buy, I buy saying in trying to help, you actually did more harm than good. That's not what this movie, you know, presents. The mayor, but it, the judge. But it never happened again. And they don't get credit for that. They are sort of wrapped up into, well, if it happened and they were part of it, it must have been their fault. And thus, what we're talking about, that ghosts are, the paranormal exists, because there's no ghosts necessarily in the sequel. Um, then they are they must be frauds. They must have made up the concept of ghosts, because... Uh, like, I... That's where I come from. I, I, I don't feel like they argue that, though. Like, no, I, they don't. I, you know, like, on the one hand, don't get me wrong, because there is no argument. Like, the only no. argument is to just stare back aghast and say, <laughs> how in the world can you forget? How right. in the world can you not know? Yeah. Um, you know, basically well, what I'm doing. Done. I mean, Egon's doing his legitimate um, research. What the heck is Ray doing? He's running a bookstore. Right. And, He's gone and, to and, 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 and moonlight And moonlighting, moonlighting at kids' parties. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, they haven't totally forgotten. They've become a kid's party joke. It'd be like if the Avengers only had... This is what happens when you don't actually have superpowers. You only have science. <laughs> it was just like six Hawkeyes on the team? Right. Exactly. <laughs> then Hawkeye eventually just ends up at the birthday party because there's no other, like, superhuman things for him to be doing. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a sequel. I, I feel like the one thing I thought about when I was watching it is... As much as I bemoan Hollywood planning out universes, and and Sony, let's let's be honest, Sony's trying to figure out a way to do this with mm-hmm. Ghostbusters right now. As much as I bemoan that and bemoan planning two and three and four movies at a time, well, only because it often means that you don't focus on the now. Yeah, as much as yeah, yeah and it, like I like you know I bemoan it because I I do believe it is a valid criticism. Right. Um, as much as I do bemoan that, I at least have to be honest with myself and say well the alternative is just do it again and bigger 
Because right. that's, that's if you go back to the late eighties, that's, that's all Hollywood did. was doing. You know, sequel yep. like horror sequels were just bloodier and more vicious kills. Uh-huh. An action movie was just bigger explosions. This kind of it's you got to raise the body count. Yep. Yeah, and and I, I think that's that's kind of what I, I didn't like, and that's also why there wasn't a third one. Was they just really didn't have another? They didn't story have anywhere to, to go. Yeah. No. You know, it's it's the weird thing. It's a weird thing with Ghostbusters in the first place is it really is kind of just a self-contained story. Mm-hmm. Aside from them just facing weirder and weirder demons, there, how much more story do you have to tell there? Oh, I don't think there's anything left no. after, from the original um, pieces they've set up because they didn't set anything up. No, no, exactly. Now, where I will agree with you that this movie does still have value, because you're not completely wrong. Um <laughs> Um, there you go. There's my hashtag. Not completely wrong. <laughs> um, is at the very least, I like watching these guys hang out. Right? Oh yeah. I, I there there's a moment like when Egon's talking about not having a slinky because he straightened it. <laughs> you, you know, like uh, yeah, those little things. And don't tell Venkman. Don't bring Venkman. Like no. he's the guy you don't want at the party. And then of course one can torture him as a brother or a sibling. He pulls his ears, and um, yeah, he knows keep, keep how to talking. get the information. I love it. I think it works so well in terms of how they interact. I don't know what they really did with Winston, other than let him keep doing kids' parties, though. Does he have a job that he's gone they to? They don't say. I didn't think so. Um, he's like he's pr- presumably he's out there doing something because he's he's certainly not just sitting on his butt or um, going to the kids parties or, or or just going to the kids parties. But they don't really explore what he's up to now, which is weird because he's like the only person they don't really like. They you know they they give they give Lewis more to do, which is why I'm yeah. really uh, worried about Kevin. You know, when you look at how much more Rick Moranis has to do in Ghostbusters 2 than he had in Ghostbusters 1, I'm like, okay, here's our here's our roadmap for Thor. This is what's coming. Well, they did kind of model that when um, Kevin's trying to be a Ghostbusters 2 also. Yeah. yeah. And that's what Lewis is trying to do in Ghostbusters 2. When um, he actually puts on the suit and runs up yeah. and thinks he saved them yeah but no i do i do like you know i i like that that's the one thing that i like about this movie is just watching these watching these people hang out and have their little back and forth it's like there's a great exchange a great deadpan exchange between egon and vinkman about um about dana when like when they're when they're talking about you know the the demon seems to be fascinated with her baby and egon very straight laced and very matter-of-factly meaning it completely says I'd like to run some gynecological tests on the mother. To which Vinkman, without missing a beat, says, "Who wouldn't?" Right. You know, things like that. I, I I love in this movie, and and that's the only reason why I go back to it is those little offhanded jokes. The rest and of it, Peter no, McNichol. I was gonna say Peter McNichol oh. is the reason I go back to it. Oh he's so God. terrible. He's oh, he's brutal. He's so Janos. bad. Janos the- is such a dumb character. I Janos. 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 Sorry. Janos. Janos. Janos oh my is gosh, so bad. so bad. He's such the, like, well, think about it in a weird way. He is such the nerd of the 80s. Like, he is even nerdier than our three Ghostbusters. Yeah. 
that's why they dislike him. He's the like international foreign exchange student kid. And, y- and you know what? I could quote so much stuff that Janos says in this movie. I know. He's Vigo. You know, like I, I hate that I could do that. <laughs> oh no! I, this you could is... be the mother of the ruler of the world. Yeah. Doesn't that sound nice? A child. A child. Oh god damn he's it he's so funny no he's not he's, yes he is oh this movie is so dumb <laughs> he's so dumb so but he's dumb. so painful I, and the the actor who plays Vigo <laughs> is not like an actor he's like a bodybuilder from Germany well they don't give Wilhelm Vigo, von Homburg they don't really give Vigo anything to do no he just has to look like scary yeah. and I don't know I think he might have done porn because he's in something called the silence <laughs> of the hams Oh man, no! So that like it, it's it's crazy because to anybody who says they're ruining my childhood, or anybody who says they're ruining Ghostbusters by by turning it into something that it's not supposed to be, well, it's like, hey, you know what? They already did that. At least oh. to, to my perspective, they already did that. They already wrecked it by they making another a cartoon one. series out of it. Right, but at least the cartoon series was just a cartoon, and it was harmless, and it was like, hey, look at all these little adventures they go on. You know, it was done in 20 minutes and aimed at kids. If you want to do that, do that. You want to take something and turn it into a side part. Like, you want to turn it into comic books, or you want to turn it into a novel series, or a TV show, go ahead, at least. You know, and and they they did that in the 80s, too, right? Like, there were a mm-hmm. lot of movies that they turned into TV shows. Ferris Bueller was yeah. a tv show they, they that's right you know, that was weird that's uh, no i i uh my my takeaway from ghostbusters 2 is is something i always say and something i love to say and it's watch it again if you think that the movie is like watch it as a grown-up and watch it for how absurd it actually is because my god um it, it makes this new ghostbusters look even better which is a good thing i think uh, yeah, I agree. All right. It, it is far... The new Ghostbusters is far superior to Ghostbusters 2. Yeah, but I think... I be- love it ahead. in similar ways. Yeah, I, 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 um, I think the best thing I heard all weekend about the new Ghostbusters is not as good as the original, better than Ghostbusters 2, and I enjoyed it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so take that for what it's worth. Hardly and- damning praise. Well, the, like it, it is right. It's it's just saying like where it kind of fits. It's 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 part of this world, and it's saying like where it fits into this world. Yeah, and, and assigning the first one, um, like assigning the first one points for creativity, and you know, <laughs> really kicking the crap out of the last one for just how <laughs> how much of a cash grab it probably was. Yeah, um, but um, and and you know, yeah, like you said, damning praise, which yeah still praise yeah that is episode 161 of the matinee cast come on back monday august 1st for episode 162 we'll be discussing star trek beyond where i cash in another chip on another favor on another podcasting guest uh two weeks in a row um jess can be found at realinsight.podomatic.com uh her new episode will be coming up as well in about two weeks which year are you guys covering next 1980 empire strikes back and ordinary people all oh, right we told you told me about that already i have the memory of a fruit fly these days i can tell you about or a goldfish or a goldfish i can tell you about the sequels of 1989 but i can't remember a conversation we had on monday <laughs> good um if people want to follow you on twitter where can they find you well, I used to have a blog called Insight into Entertainment quite a while ago, so my Twitter handle is in underscore entertain. Very nice. 
My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, Pocket Cast, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on Ghostbusters 2016, Ghostbusters 2, or Spy can be left in the comment section of the site. You can email me, ryan, at thematinee.ca. Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Doc? Oh, I like that you used that. It was good. I had a lot of fun watching these movies this week. They are excellent comedies. Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah. <laughs> For Jess, I'm Brian. We'll see you at the matinee.